So again, Hebrews 3, um, we're going to start in verse 5 and all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, um, we open our ears to you and to your word. By your spirit, help us to open our hearts to receive it that we might see ourselves clearly and uh, repent where that is needed so that we might see Christ clearly and we might cling to him and rely upon him and uh, follow after him in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So we're in a book, uh, in a series uh, in the book of Hebrews. Um, we've been looking at how Christ is greater. Uh, the author of Hebrews has told us in many different ways how Christ is greater than uh, many of the things that his audience were drawn to. Uh, he was writing to first century Jewish Christians who had left Judaism and believed in Christ. But as uh, the Lord tarried and as they were walking with him and their neighbors and family and friends uh, were hostile to them, they were tempted to uh, fall back into their former ways and to return to Jewish practices. And, uh, and the author of Hebrews is writing and saying Christ is greater than the old covenant and the old ways that God had arranged for his people to live with him. And so you need to persevere and continue trusting in Jesus Christ. And so this book is, is um, good for us to hear as well, even though we're not in that same position, because we also are tempted uh, all the time to fall back into old ways or to uh, veer off into other ideologies and other religions rather than holding on to Christ, who is greater than, um, than everything. As we saw in chapter one, he is the creator and the sustainer and the heir, the thing that all of history is oriented toward. Last week, we entered into this kind of second argument of the book. We saw first in the first chapter um, that Christ is greater than angels. And now here in chapter three, we see that Christ is greater than Moses. And, and Trevor um, preached last week about how Moses is a faithful or was a faithful servant in God's household. Uh, he was an envoy. He was sent by God in one sense to represent God to the people. And he was also like a high priest who represented the people to God. And he was faithful in his ministry over Israel, over the people of God. And yet Jesus is not just a servant in God's house. He is the son of God who uh, is the inheritor of the household. And he is the one who was sent from God himself to represent God to us. And he is our high priest who brings us into the presence of God. And so in verse six of chapter three, we hear this line, we are God's house. And then there's this important phrase that launches the rest of the chapter. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And that verse is, is really what's going to launch everything that we talk about today. Moses is this positive example of a faithful service in, a servant in God's household, in the people of God. But now we get a negative example. Someone or a group of people who were not faithful, namely Israel, as they came out of Egypt, they were set free by God from slavery, and yet they grumbled, they rebelled, and they didn't enter into the promised land. That whole generation died in the wilderness. And so this passage is a warning to us. It is a warning that we must not fall away from the living God. That's what he says, the author says in verse 12 of chapter 3. Now, I got to be honest, it's not fun preaching this text today. <laughs> These are not the texts you just love to um, dig into. Um, it, they, it's a hard passage uh, because it is a warning. It's a warning to the people of God. But all scripture is profitable and it's able to equip us for every good work that God has for us. And it's my job to, when scripture warns us, to warn us. And so we're going to be thinking today about the issue of apostasy, that is falling away from the faith, um, not holding on to Christ, not continuing to believe, but to turn away, to fall away, to leave the church, to leave God. Um, and therefore, we'll also be talking about persevering, continuing in the faith. And of course, the question that's related to all that, which is how can I be confident 
that I belong to God, assurance. All of this is wrapped up in our passage today. Now, there are kind of two big errors that we have to balance or be careful of uh, when we start talking about apostasy and perseverance. First, uh, on the one hand, is the idea that we can't have any confidence at all that we belong to God. Uh, this is something that a lot of Christian traditions, I think, uh, live in. In Rome, especially in the medieval era, even to a certain degree today, um, there is not a real offer uh, or comfort that we can truly know we belong to God. And that's true in other forms of Protestant theology as well. And so uh, Christians are to go about their lives hoping that maybe they will one day enter into God's rest. The other error is maybe more common among uh, us today here in this room, based on a lot of the backgrounds I know you and I have, which is um, something like this phrase, once saved, always saved. Um, that uh, you go to a church, you hear a message, you get emotionally worked up, you walk down the aisle or you pray a prayer, and then you're told, okay, you're secure forever in God and you don't have to worry about this ever again. And uh, no matter what you go on and do from here, you prayed that prayer. And so you're always saved. And that really doesn't resonate with our passage today at all. Uh, the passage that we just read a second ago uh, warns us that it's possible to be part of God's people, visibly the church, to have in some sense experienced this power of God, but to fall away. And I know what it's like to wrestle with this sense of assurance between these two poles of having no assurance or having a sort of cheap uh, sense of assurance. And I know many of you have wrestled with this. I've sat and spoken with many of you and you're tormented by your sin or your failures, or maybe you're plagued by a sense of doubt. You just, I don't know what I think about all this sometimes. And it weighs you down and it makes you fear that maybe you're not a real Christian. And I want to tell you right now, if you want to uh, really be helped in this matter, you should go read our, our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is our doctrinal standard for our church and our denomination. Chapter 18 is probably the best and most balanced little piece of writing on this issue. And it's probably better than the sermon today. So go uh, check that out and look at chapter 18. I'm trying to let that shape what I say today. But I want to exhort you, this is our message, um, that we are to take care, to hold fast to Christ, and to encourage one another. That's our message. To take care, to hold fast, and to encourage one another. And I want us to see this by looking at three concepts, covenant, God's rest, and faith. Now, I've got a bunch of notes in front of me, and I'm going to... Uh, it's been a long week, and I'm just going to go off the cuff on this because uh, all this stuff is all jumbled in my head, and I think I know it down here better than I do right here right now. So um, if, it, if you have questions along the way today, please make use of this phone number and put them up there because I'll probably do a better job answering your question than I will laying this all out. All right? So let's talk about covenant first. And you, you might say, that's a bit odd. What, what do you, where in the world did you get that from? I didn't even read that word in this passage um, what is a covenant anyway? Why are you bringing this up? Well, uh, a covenant is really, uh, it's sort of woven throughout this passage. It's embedded, it's hidden, but it's there. It's actually the framing of this entire passage. What is a covenant, you might be saying? Well, a covenant is essentially an arrangement of a relationship, okay? Um, it is a, a relationship that is entered into by making promises to one another, and that relationship has certain duties and responsibilities. And there is a certain uh, life and blessing that is on offer if we live according to those stipulations. And there are penalties for violating those stipulations. 
Um, and that is kind of inherent in this passage. Um, you may know of marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Uh, it is a relationship where two people make promises to one another. There are certain duties that are bound up in marriage that you have toward one another. If you live according to those duties, if you love one another, there is a blessing to marriage. If you don't, there is uh, there are penalties, there are consequences, there is a pain and a damage and even a possible breaking of that covenant that can happen. And, um, and so that's the nature of a covenant. You might say, well, how is that different than a contract? Contracts are similar. There's, there's stipulations that say how the relationship's going to be. But one thing that's different about a covenant is that a covenant is aimed at bringing people together. That's not always the truth with, with uh, that's not always true with contracts, right? You can have a mortgage on your home, um, but you're not trying to have a relationship with your mortgage broker. You're just saying this is, we've agreed to some terms. There's a transaction, there's money. But the, the goal here is not for us to be united together. But a covenant is a type of contract where the two parties are seeking to have union, communion with one another, and ultimately love. And that is at the heart of God's relationship to his people. He saves, um, he brings us into relationship by establishing a covenant people, a people that are marked out in the world and are given certain promises about how God is going to renew them and forgive them and restore them and make them his own. And there are conditions on that, that we have to believe God's promises. And there are duties entailed in that, that we're to walk before him and obey his commands. And there are, uh, there are curses. There are penalties that happen if you belong to God's covenant people, but you forsake the stipulations uh, of the covenant. This is very different than how we tend to think about salvation very often in America today, where we think of it as purely an individual relationship, right? Uh, that, that's definitely a part of what the Bible tells us about um, faith in God and knowing Christ is that we have to personally know God. Um, and so we think typically, you know, God relates to me directly and the people of God is sort of, uh, you know, ancillary. It's sort of uh, to the side of my relationship with God. I have to know God and then maybe I go to church because that kind of helps me in knowing God. That's how we tend to think about it. But that's not the way the Bible presents it. In fact, that's sort of backwards. Um, it, it, the way that God works is that he makes a people. And he says, these are the people that I'm going to be with. I'm going to be their God. And to know me, you have to join that people. And that's where you live and walk with me. And the entire passage we looked at today demonstrates this is the arrangement that God has in the world. The passage shows us that there's this parallel situation between Israel and the church even now. And so the, the entire thing we read relates uh, the story of Israel, God's covenant people, coming out of, Exod uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus, being uh, brought through the waters of the Red Sea, and they're in the wilderness, and they're supposed to enter into the promised land, and yet they fail to do that. And so what we see is that that group of people um, serves as a warning to the church today. Um, in the psalmist day also, this, uh, this psalmist writes about that same time, and he says in his day, the same issue is going on. Israel's much farther down the road, and God is calling them to uh, walk with him and believe in him and enter into his rest, and they often fail to do that in the life of Israel. The church is in the same boat. We are like Israel. We are a covenant people, and that means that um, visibly we have been marked out from the world through, for instance, baptism. 
Baptism is the way that you come into this covenant people. And once you are baptized, you are not the same, right? Just like when you get married uh, and you make promises to your spouse and um, now you're married, that's a legally binding thing. Now, that, that there may not be any love there between you, right? You can, you can marry someone and not really love them. You can marry someone and have other uh, motives in mind or not really be in love. That doesn't matter. You're married because of those promises you've made publicly. And that will, ever, that will forever shape you. Maybe the marriage doesn't work out, but you're not going to go back to what you were before. You're now someone who has um, been divorced and this marriage has fallen apart. That's, uh, that, that covenant, regardless of internally what's going on, um, it shapes your life. And that's how it is with the church as well. When you're baptized, you're brought into God's people. And you are now living in this arrangement with God in his covenant stipulations. And that means you have the option of trusting God and receiving the blessings that he gives us in Christ by grace. Or you can fail to trust in God. And that brings you into a sort of a more severe judgment. You have a greater knowledge of God. You have a greater knowledge of what's on offer. And if you reject that, that is different than if you had never joined God's people at all. So this is the key context that's woven throughout our entire passage is this idea of a covenant. God saves through covenant. That is how God is at work in the world. The second thing uh, I want us to see today is this concept of God's rest. And uh, that's really, uh, as, as I read it, you probably heard that over and over again. It's sort of woven through the passage as well. This passage is about the rest of God. Um, and the author of Hebrews deploys this and develops this idea very carefully. He does it in several stages. Um, he starts off by talking about, the, or he doesn't start off, but he, he does highlight how God's finished work at the end of creation is a type of rest. Okay, so go back to the beginning of the Bible and think of God creating the world. And it describes that creation in terms of six days. And on the seventh day, it says God rested. What is he doing there? God's not tired. Right? God is resting because he's sitting back, enthroned over his creation, enjoying all that he has done. And all of his creation is ordered toward enjoying him and joining him in the rest, the, the enjoyment of his creation. So the author of Hebrews mentions that rest, and then he goes on to compare that to the rest that Israel was meant to experience in the promised land. God brought Israel out of Egypt from slavery. He set them free. They were to journey into Canaan, but uh, there were some problems. They, they grumbled along the way. They didn't trust God's provision in the wilderness. They sent spies into the land, and those spies said, these people are very powerful. I don't know if we can dislodge them. And so they didn't trust God. And God was angry with them because he had promised to provide that for them. And so that generation that came out of Israel died in the wilderness, and they didn't enter into God's rest. That rest in Canaan was supposed to be a return to the Garden of Eden. It was supposed to be a, a new Eden where God was going to give Israel peace and prosperity and safety, and uh, he would dwell with them and be their God. And yet they failed to enter that rest, that first generation. Um, thirdly, this rest is talked about as something that's enduring. So God rested it at the end of creation, but then he offered the same rest to Israel when they entered the promised land. But many years later, when the psalmist in Psalm 95, which is quoted in chapter 3, he, uh, he picks up on this story of Israel in the wilderness, and he speaks to his audience in that day, and he says, today you're to enter God's rest. And so Hebrews is making this point that the rest of God 
that, that we're to enter into is still on offer today. It remains, he says, in chapter 4, verse 6, for some to enter it, right? So long after Israel failed to enter the rest, in David's day, in Psalm 95, we see that God is still welcoming people to enjoy his rest. And so finally, in verse 11 of chapter 4, the very end of the passage I read, the, the sort of take-home, the application of all that, that, that he had said thus far, is that we are to strive to enter this rest even now that you and I are called by God to enter into his rest. And he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we're like Israel. Uh, just as they were on a journey in the wilderness and they were supposed to enter into Canaan, the church has been baptized. We're visibly set apart from the world and we are on a journey to enter into God's rest and we are to strive to enter that. We are to continue persevering, walking with God, keeping covenant with him. Uh, and we have to strive to do that. That's an ironic you know, pairing of words, to strive to enter God's rest. We're to labor in keeping covenant with God. Now, that's uh, an important thing for us to kind of sit in for a moment, because uh, as many of you know, we're reading this book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, right? We just started that in home group. And uh, one of the things he highlights in that first chapter is just how our culture is uh, built around a certain vision of success, that calls us to constantly hustle, right? If you're not hurrying, if you're not hustling, you're not working hard enough, you're not really pursuing your best, you're not um, trying to optimize your life, you're not pursuing big things, you're kind of looked down on. And so we all kind of know we all should be busy. We should be getting at it. We should be hurrying. And I would say that kind of, that sort of environment that we live in uh, is part of the reason why we're all so exhausted and weighed down. Um, I, I love the songs that Trevor picked for today, right? We're we're weary, we're burdened. That is the, the way of life here in the United States. And what we need to see is that this rest that is on offer today um, is, is targeted towards that sort of hurry and striving that is um, after things that God has made and not after God himself. God is actually inviting us to rest in him, to find our satisfaction and our rest in him. And um, that is on offer today. That has always been on offer for the church, but even if you're not in the church, it's on, you can join God's people and experience that rest. And so how do we do that? This is the, the third thing I want us to see today. And you'll see this woven throughout the passage, which is this um, emphasis on faith. Faith uh, comes up over and over and over again. This passage is an exhortation to trust Christ and a warning. It's both of those things. It's a warning not to fall away, not to stop clinging to Christ. But multiple times we are told or it is sort of alluded to that we are to trust Christ. That's how we enter the rest. So in verses uh, 7 and 14 in chapter 3, we're told to hold fast to Christ. In chapter 4, verse 1, let us fear lest we fail to reach that rest. Um, chapter 4, verse 7, do not harden your hearts, we're told. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11, that I just read a second ago, strive to enter that rest. It is by faith that we enter into the rest of God. And here, it's important that we say this, uh, we don't mean faith as in belief, and this is, or merely belief. This is probably one of the biggest challenges I, I encounter so often in the church when people are struggling with the sense of assurance of salvation, is how they conceive of faith. We think of it as beliefs, ideas, and do I, do I think of God as true, right? Um, but that's, that is not the main way the Bible uses the idea of faith. Faith is more of an entrusting of ourselves to someone. It is a relational term. 
It is not merely a mental thing about what beliefs we have, right? And just think of the illustration that this author is giving of Israel, right? They, they have seen the mighty work of God. They've been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. And how did God do that? Through plagues, through separating the waters. They saw these amazing acts of God's power. They knew that God could do this stuff. That wasn't a, it wasn't a mental challenge for them. It wasn't like, well, does God really have power? No, they knew God had power. The question was, is he for us? Is he good? Is he going to give us what we need? And they refused to entrust themselves to Yahweh. That's the sort of faith that this passage is calling us to have, is to actually entrust ourselves to God. And perseverance means that we live in covenant with God, continually entrusting our lives to him, and therefore... Um, living into the obligations of God's covenant. Now, what this means, um, as we look at this passage as a whole, and as we think about the nature of faith, it means that apostasy is a real thing, all right? I, I got to say that because that's built into this passage. Apostasy, that is falling away from the living God, is a real thing. People um, may be in the visible church for a season of their life, and then at some point, based on who knows what sort of circumstances, feel like they can no longer trust God and entrust themselves to him. And they walk away from God's people and they, uh, they no longer surrender their life to the Lord and they don't follow after him. That is a real thing. Sally and I were just talking yesterday about uh, friends that we walked with in different seasons of our lives who have, um, who have left the faith. And what a heartbreaking thing it is to see that. And of course, those stories are complicated. I'm not trying to pretend that they're not. There's often suffering or wrong done to those people. Um, but very often it's just um, people no longer wanting to uh, live according to what God has called them to live to. They don't believe that's really good for them anymore. And they want to pursue uh, what they see as good in their own way. And, uh, and so they go out from God's church. That is a real thing. And that is exactly what this passage is speaking to. In fact, Jesus spoke to it as well, right? The, the parable of the soils, this famous parable where the sower goes and casts the seed on the ground and some falls on the path and then some falls on a rocky ground and some falls where there are thorns and all of those kind of grow up or they're snatched away, um, but they don't survive. It's only the, the seed that falls in the good soil that bears much fruit. And so Jesus, even in his ministry, was telling us there are going to be people who look at first like they trust me and they walk with me and they belong to me. But over time, it's revealed they aren't trusting in me at all and they do not persevere. They do not enter into my rest. And so over and over and over again, this passage is calling us to trust in Christ in an ongoing way to continue. Don't harden your heart, it says. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 12 of chapter 3. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Uh, chapter 3, verse 19. They were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. So this church, we right here, as we listen to this word today, we are called by God to continue to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ. That's the urgent message we need to hear today. Just because you are a baptized member of the visible church does not mean for sure 100% that you will enter into God's rest. If you have faith in Christ, you have to continue to entrust yourself to Christ. Now, I don't like to sit on that point over and over and over again and uh, stir up anxiety in you because uh, one of the challenges of these sorts of warning passages is that some pastors and churches and ministries 
uh, make great use of constantly stirring up their people to doubt whether or not they are actually Christians and to live in fear. Do you really know that you know that you have faith? And there's this constant gazing at, the, you know, internally, is this real faith that I have? Am I really a Christian? Do I really mean this? And of course, they are plagued uh, often by doubts and, and, well, I know I've sinned in the same way kind of for a number of years and maybe that means I'm not really a Christian so how do I, you know, how do I know if I'm really a believer? How can I have assurance? And so I want to try to tie all this together and uh, sort of put before you the most important thing that we need to hear today, which is that Christ is our confidence and our hope. Uh, that's what Paul, or that's what the author of Hebrews says in, in verse five and six, that Christ is our confidence and our hope. He is the one who brings us into God's rest. He is the one that we confess. He is the one who is faithful to God. He lived completely, perfectly according to God's covenant stipulations. And he is the one in whom we find our rest. He is our home. He is our peace, our security. He is our access to the Father. Now, why do I say that? It's because he lived faithfully in covenant to God when Israel did not. Right? He was baptized. He went into the wilderness, as we just read a moment ago, earlier in the service, he went into the wilderness and he faced all that temptation and he came out faithful on the other end. And he went into the promised land and conquered God's enemies, so to speak. Jesus should have entered into God's rest because he was faithful. And yet he went to the cross for us and endured the curse of death for all of God's people who failed to keep covenant. This is why God has grace toward us is because Jesus was faithful to his people. He didn't forsake covenant and therefore we can have the blessings of God's covenant despite our failures to keep covenant perfectly. So we have faith in him. We put our faith in him because he is the one who gets all the benefits for us as a gift. Um, so you might say, all right, well, that still leaves me with this, this struggle. How do I know if I'm trusting in him, right? Um, and the author does tell us over and over again, using that word today, he says, now's the time to put your faith in Christ, right? This is, this is the moment. Don't wait. It's available to you now. It's urgent. It's an ongoing offer. But right now, you need to trust Christ today. Rely on him. But how do you know uh, that you really have faith? Well, I want to I encourage you not to spend all your time looking inward at your own faith and try to analyze it. That's not what this passage is calling us to do. It's calling us to look outward to the God who is faithful to us. And if you keep looking at him... Uh, and you keep clinging to him, then you don't have to sit there and wonder what sort of faith you have, right? Hold fast to him. Look to him constantly. Remember God's promises to us. Remember Christ's faithfulness. And don't be um, plagued or, or don't be worried about the doubts that you might have. See, when we think of faith as an intellectual uh, thing about ideas, then uh, we tend to think that doubts and a lack of assurance means we don't have real faith, right? Did, did you, you follow me on that? But, that, but if faith is entrusting ourselves, it doesn't actually matter whether or not we have some doubts, right? If I say to my children, hey, um, I want you to do this thing uh, this way, and they go, I don't really understand why you're telling me to do it that way. I don't get that. Uh, that doesn't seem right to me. I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, but they do it anyway, and they trust me, then it, regardless of their level of confidence, in the way I've told them to do that thing, it doesn't matter. They have exercised faith in me. And that's, that's how it works with God as well. You, you may be plagued with doubts. I don't really know if, he, if God exists. 
I don't really understand how this stuff can work out this way. Evil seems like a terrible thing. How, how can God be good if, if evil exists? I mean, you can have all sorts of doubts. But if you entrust yourself to God in the midst of those doubts, um, that is true faith. And that's how you persevere. And over time, um, more understanding develops. That's, that's the way we understand faith in the Christian tradition. Faith seeks understanding. But you're never going to have it all figured out. So, you know, beliefs and having right beliefs is not what we mean when we talk about faith. We mean entrusting ourselves to God. So that's that's what I want to urge you with today, um, that we're to take care, we're to hold fast to Christ, we're to encourage one another. All three of those things are important. Take care. Uh, back in chapter 3, verse 12, that's what we're urged to do. Take care that we don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. There is a, a sort of self-examination that should go on in our lives. But it's not analyzing faith. It's looking at the overall trajectory of our life. Am I headed towards the promised land? Is that the life that I'm living? Am I, am I entrusting myself to God and where I'm aiming? Have I seen the Spirit of God over time developing godly character in me? Have I seen over time my desires begin to change and I find myself less drawn to these things and more drawn to these things? Um, am I more humble than I used to be? Uh, do I, am I quicker to repent? Those are the things we're supposed to look for. Take care that we don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. And then he says, hold fast to Christ. He's our confidence and hope. Let, let 10 times let us look at Jesus and only one time looking at ourselves. And then thirdly, I want to highlight this last thing in uh, chapter 3, verse 13. We're, to we're told to exhort one another every day. And this is contrary to the way we think about this whole topic as well. This whole time I've been talking, you've probably been thinking, this is up to me. I've got to persevere. I've got to trust in Christ. And while that's true, the author of Hebrews says that this is a communal effort. That our perseverance is something that, um, that is affected by all of us working together. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the church is so important to our perseverance, is that we need one another. We need to exhort one another and encourage one another. Sometimes we exhort one another and we say, watch out. The direction you're headed is not good. That's dangerous. That leads to death. That's not right. Uh, but other times we say, take heart. You know, God, Christ has bought you. You belong to him. Uh, yes, I see you struggling, but you belong to God and um, he is with us. And we can do this together. Let's keep going towards Christ together. Um, but we, we actually do have to keep one another, so to speak. We, we are our brother's keeper. We have responsibility toward one another. Our presence here and in the rest of our community life is vital to our encouraging one another to continue in the faith and to enter into God's rest. So with that, uh, I probably raised more questions than answered. So I hope you've asked me some or you can talk to me after the service over here. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to answer them. But let's go to the Lord's table um, where this new covenant, this, this arrangement that God has made with us through Christ is celebrated and uh, received by faith, right? That's what this table is all about. This is one of the means that God's offer that God offers us that we belong to Him. And every week, you know, we say, "Look, don't come and eat this if you're clinging to your sin, if you're not repenting," because that's that warning of this passage. But today is the day to trust Him. Today is the day to cling to Him again. And say, "I need God's forgiveness. I need God's power in my life. I need to be cleansed of the ways I've." sullied myself and those around me. And we come to this table and we take in God's promises and we cling to them and we say, I am a child of God. God is faithful to me. He sent his son to give his life for me, his 
his body up on the cross. He shed his blood to cleanse me. And we take those promises in. And this is an anticipation of the rest that we will one day experience when we feast in the very presence of God. So let's pray together.